Did you ever wonder how some of the greatest people today become who they are? Most everyone has experienced that turning point in their life. It's these moments that forever changed who they were into whom they become. Today on The Moment with Chris Epting, you'll hear from these people and hopefully be inspired to find your own life-changing moment. Now, here is your host, Chris Epting. All right. Good to be back. I'm percepting this is the moment. And if you know me at all or anything about me, you know I am a baseball guy. I sit here right now cradling a baseball in my hand, as I will always do during phone calls, meetings, whatever. Got to have a baseball. I'm looking at my mitt right across the way here. I am staring at a chair from Ebbets Field and a chair from the Polo Grounds. I, I'm, I'm a baseball guy. It goes, in fact, since this is a show about moments, if I had to pinpoint moments from my life in the top 10, I know what two of them would be. One of them would be uh, being in Chase Stadium in 1986 at the famous Game 6 uh, World Series game, the Bill Buckner game when the Mets triumphantly and miraculously defeated the Red Sox in Game 6 before going on to win Game 7. Being there that night, I kind of measure my life on either side of that moment. Another one would be Game 6 in the 2002 World Series, watching our Anaheim Angels out here come back and defeat the San Francisco Giants before beating them in Game 7 right after that. So baseball plays a big part in my life. It goes way back to about second or third grade. Uh, Carrie E. Tompkins Elementary School, Croton on Hudson, New York, my friend Tommy Monahan. He's reading a book about Babe Ruth. And I was just becoming a baseball fan then. The Mets winning the series in 69 was, was a really big deal in our household. And I didn't know who Babe Ruth was, though. And as my friend Tommy explained to me before lending me that book, uh, he told me that he had been, you know, the most famous baseball player of all time. So I certainly wanted to know more. Uh, what was kind of interesting to me thinking back on it now, the Babe was only only dead about 20 years before then. I mean, even though it seemed like we were reading about Abe Lincoln or somebody, it was a fairly recent occurrence, his loss. But one thing in the book that jumped out at me was the fact that Babe was laid to rest at the Gate of Heaven Cemetery in Valhalla, New York, which was coincidentally not 15 or 20 minutes from where I lived. So I begged my mom to take me there on August 16th, the anniversary of the Babe's death, uh, when I was in, again, about third grade. I climbed up the hill, I said a little something there at the grave, and I left my Yankee hat there in sort of tribute. We were at the stadium not long after that at Yankee Stadium, the good old Yankee Stadium, pre-1973 renovation. And I got another Yankee hat. And then this was a cycle for me for about six or seven years as a kid. For six or seven years, I would go up every August 16th to the Babe's grave, leave my hat, go get another Yankee hat, play baseball in it all year. And again, Babe Ruth to me uh, was and is just one of the most important figures in modern American history. And and since then, I would go on to study him, read about him, travel the country in search of places where Babe Ruth slept and played baseball and ate and drank and caroused and did all these things. And, you know, as as a baseball person, and as a writer myself, I kind of thought that I knew the whole story, you know, and, uh, you know, again, I read anything I could about the babe and, you know, you think, you know, everything. And, you know, I remember going to the hall of fame when I was a kid and the first thing I wanted to see was Babe Ruth's locker. Again, Babe Ruth means a lot to me. I thought I knew it all. And then along comes a book last fall called The Big Fella, Babe Ruth and the World He Created, written by the acclaimed National, National New York Times bestselling author, Jane Levy, who has uh, gifted us with, with a couple of other really incredible baseball titles, one involving Mickey Mantle and one with Sandy Koufax. I'm a fan, and I am so happy that she is with me here today. Jane, are you there? I didn't know all that stuff about you, Chris. That is way cool. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, not as cool as your book. First of all, congratulations, Jane, on the success Thank of The Big so, Fella. Thank you so, so much. It really, you know, we're going to get into it. I thought what we would do here in our three segments is first talk about the book in segment one, and segment two, talk about moments from your life as an, as an author and things that have changed you. And then in segment three, maybe we can speculate a little bit on moments from the big fellow's life, take a little liberty there and think about what maybe, if he were here today, what he would say, uh, if that sounds good for you. But but getting to the book, it um, again, I you know, when I, when I first started reading it last fall, which was great because right at, you know, at the end of the World Series, we all kind of go into that baseball hibernation and a book like this comes along and it's like, okay, cool. I got something to tide me over. I'm going to, I'm going to survive this season, this off season. I was hoping it would be everybody's transitional object for the winter. Well, I think for a lot of people it was. I mean, obviously, I mean, the book is has, has just gotten so many incredible reviews. And, and recently, you, I want to ask you, there are a couple of awards you've been nominated for already. What, what, what did I read this just this past week? Um, it's, it's, yeah, I'm gobsmacked, Chris. Um, I'm one of the four finalists for the National Book Critics, uh, Circle Award for Biography. And that is, you know, I went back and looked at the history of who's been nominated in that category. And there's only one other sports book that's ever been nominated in that category. And that was David Remnick's 1998 book about Muhammad Ali. Wow. And to have... Uh, a sports subject, um, and particularly this subject, be treated so um, seriously by you know so, by book critics uh, is 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 really a big deal, and um, I'm also uh, among the finalists for the Penn Faulkner Award that's given annually for uh, literary sports um, writing. That's uh, amazing. The big fella, Babe Ruth, and the world he created from Jane Levy, HarperCollins, put it out last year. I'm not surprised because I think what you've done here is you've not really written a sports book. You've written a book that's bigger bigger than that, and it gets into all Gosh, different kinds of – saying that. Thank well, you. well, it's true. I mean, what you do, I think, is use Babe Ruth as the obviously the reason for the book's being, but but it's a book about about what he did to the country, what the country did to him. It's a book about how we as a society react to a to a Babe Ruth, and and again, I, the thing that really gets me is you and I a number of years ago were on kind of a panel thing up at USC when my son was still going there, and it's a number. It's, I don't know, six years ago maybe, and you were talking a little bit about this then, long time ago, a lot of time has gone into this book. Jane, what did you think back then, knowing all that had been written about Babe Ruth, what what spoke to you, what did you still think was out there, what what inspired you to to do what you did? Because again, we if there was never another Babe Ruth book, beforehand I would have thought we'd be fine, but what you've illuminated and brought to the forefront, I mean, it made me realize I know very little, and, I, and I'm immersed in this stuff. What, what made you think that story was still out there, the stories that you told in this book? I didn't think there was something out there, and for that reason, um, before I agreed to write uh, a nonfiction book about Babe Ruth, I originally wanted to write a novel about him, to tell you the truth. I sat down and read every other biography that's been written, and there are plenty of them, and a lot of them are plenty good, starting with Bob Creamer's book from 1974, and most recently, Lee Montfield's book from 2006, I believe. I apologize, Lee, if I've got that wrong. And each of the books in between have all contributed something important about the understanding of this larger-than-life, you know, cliche, uh, larger-than-life figure. 
But what I noticed by reading them all in succession was that the first 20 years of his life are missing. It's almost as if he emerged fully-fledged in a Baltimore Orioles uniform playing for Jack Dunn in the International League um, uh, Orioles in 1914. And nothing comes before. I actually asked Bob Creamer about it shortly before his death. And he said, well, I didn't do much with the childhood. And, uh, and the, you know, and I remember saying to him, how can you do that? Well, the truth is that up until a certain point, and you might say Bob was, uh, was a revolutionary in this way, sports biographies were what Ma- Mickey Mantle always said were that Jack Armstrong bleep. And, you know, <laughs> you could get away with writing um, a history of a life that was mostly a playing life, an athletic right. life, without doing the whole breadth of it. If you had tried to do that, um, leave out the childhood of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, for example, you'd be laughed out of the Library of Congress. But that wasn't what sports writing was about in those days. And making it harder even, and this is, you're, you're a writer, you know, I'm sure, have the same instinct. When some, something is missing from a life, um, and, and the writers are skirting around it. You know right off, if you've been doing it as long as I have, that not only is something important missing, but it's, imp- it's missing for a reason. And part of that reason was that Babe Ruth didn't want anybody to know what was, what was really true about his childhood and the family that expunged him, for better or worse, uh, when he was seven years old. And in addition, you had a a, a collaborative press for, for uh, again, better or worse way of putting it, that mm-hmm. would have hidden anything he asked them to hide should they have been privy to the facts. And what's more, you had documents and, um, and newspapers, local newspapers, that were inaccessible um, to the people who wrote about him prior to me. I mean, Bob Creamer couldn't have found what I found unless he spent, you know, a, a year in in the in the morgue of the Baltimore Sun reading microfiche until mm-hmm. he went blind. I, by however, um, you know, starting out thinking there was nothing new to find and no way to fi- find it, f- figured out pretty fast that the revolution in the digital availability of documents and newspapers means that I could access with a click of a mouse that which would have taken Bob or Lee or, you know, any of the other guys, you know, years and and a whole lot of luck to find. So there was a story buried in those, in those papers. Mm -hmm. And while Bob particularly had access to the voices of, and the, you know, the persons that he played with and against and the Yankee management, um, and I, of course, don't because, as Casey Stengel would have said, most of those guys are presently dead. Um, <laughs> uh, what I had access to that Bob couldn't get was the documents that spoke to me and told the story of Babe Ruth's young life. 
Well, the the Jane Levy is my guest today. We're talking about her incredible book, Babe Ruth and the World He Created, The Big Fella. And as the respected baseball writer Bill James said about it, Jane Levy writing a book about Babe Ruth is the biggest thing that has happened in my life since Santa Claus visited my classroom in the second grade. This is Babe Ruth <laughs> off the diamond and out of uniform, a very flawed human being, but still very much a hero, a man who could lift an army of beggars and wannabes onto his back and carry them to their dreams. I think that's a, a key thing here, how you've humanized the babe, and we're going to get into it in a minute after we go to a quick break here, uh, because I think really what you've done here is you've not not demystified him, but you've showed us a human being where all too often we're given uh, this iconic kind of facade of what he was, for better or worse, but you really delve into the, the insights that made him what he was. And uh, we're going to get to that in a minute. My Again, this is the moment. I'm Chris Epting. My guest is Jane Levy. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea. To Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to The Moment with Chris Epting. If you have a question or comment about our show, please send an email to Chris at chrisepting.com. That's chris at chrisepting.com. Now, back to The Moment. Talking today with my special guest author, Jane Levy, about the big fella, Babe Ruth, and the world he created, the best-selling phenomenal book that she's put out recently through HarperCollins. Jane, talk to me a little bit about, um, you were talking in the first piece about how technology today allows you access to things that other writers may not have had access to. What did you learn specifically? What were a couple of things that, that technology allowed you to discover that may not have been available, say, 10, 20 years ago, that sort of blew so, you away? Yeah, the aha moment, you know, what you do with a book like this, is, and it sounds crude, but it's just practical. You go to the oldest people first to talk to. And so I first went to speak to his daughter, Julia Ruth Stevens, who is then 95 or 96. She's now 102. And <laughs> apropos of absolutely nothing that I can summon and, and, and recall, she said, you do know that George Ruth Sr. and Katie Ruth, Babe Ruth's parents, were separated and I went, uh, after my jaw dropped and I picked it up off the floor, I said, uh, no, I did not know. And she said, well, I just thought everybody knew. Well, nobody knew. Beirut didn't want them to know. 
But with that hint, I then went to one of his granddaughters and said, Julia says they were separated. She said, oh, no, they were divorced. And <laughs> then you don't have to be a genius to do this. Then you go and you type into your computer, uh, George Herman Ruth Sr. V. Katie Ruth. And guess what? Up pops the entire divorce file with the depositions and the arrest records and the legal fees. And what's more, um, this divorce, which took place in uh, the spring of 1906 after George Sr. caught Katie in a compromising position with one of his bartenders, um, led to the complete expulsion of her from the family um, and to his being consigned to St. Mary's Industrial School for Boys, which is on the western edge of the city, mm-hmm. um, you know, for the remainder of his childhood. And, you know, deus ex machina, you go, oh, my God, now he makes sense. He was abandoned. He was a little boy, seven years old, left on his own in an industrial school setting to figure out a life and a self. And he did it. And that little boy, who was known in his negligent family as Little George, became the big fella. And once I understood what had happened to him as a boy and what he was keeping to himself and refusing to discuss, I suddenly understood, you know, like a, like a kaleidoscope coming into focus, mm-hmm. why, why he needed to be that big fella, why he was the perfect person to be the model for modern celebrity because he craved that attention and he craved the love that he never got at home. Well, I think right there in that nutshell, that's a great example of of the sorts of things that you illuminate in this book. You know, gone is the cliche of the the precocious kid who's got to be locked up because he's, you know, too much to handle. And now all of a sudden you have this very human situation where you've got character motivation, like you say, of why he wants to be what he becomes. Um, There really had not been a celebrity. I mean, what you go into the book uh, a great deal is just how he sort of created this idea of modern celebrity and what it takes to to deal with it. And he dealt with it pretty well, don't you think? I mean, even... Oh, my God, yeah. I mean, so, you know, he is a little boy at at St. Mary's, um, slept with the other kids in long wrought iron rows of cots that had just enough room between them to for a bent wooden chair and for a uh, and for a little boy to get down on his knees and pray and those kids slept head to toe they bathed together they ate together albeit in silence they played baseball together and what Babe Ruth learned at St. Mary's not was not just how to be a tailor which he could have been a good one uh, and not just how to hit and throw the hell out of a ball but how to be public there was no privacy and for the rest of his life, you know, you can draw a, a line and, and understand that this was a guy who would thrive it, surrounded by boys, which is what happened to him. Everywhere he went for the rest of his life, he'd be surrounded by boys and he'd be glad to see them and he'd be more comfortable in his own skin at those kinds of events and circumstances than he was anywhere else. What he couldn't be was alone. And when he was left alone 
and baseball turned its back on him after his career ended in June 1935, he was completely at, at a loss. He didn't know what to do with himself. Baseball had no place for him. And that abandonment by the game was a complete recapitulation of the abandonment by his family as a little kid. And it was excruciating for him. Shane, you use uh, what I really enjoy in the book is a, is a literary device. You use the very famous 1927 barnstorming tour that he and Lou Gehrig, Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig, um, were part of. And, uh, you know, from there, that allows you to sort of jut off and tell lots of different kinds of stories. But, but the tour really breaks down a lot about Ruth and Gehrig's celebrity, for that matter. What did you learn about their relationship? Because that's always, to me, seemed like one of the more complicated um, relationships in baseball, number three and number four, uh, Murderer's Row. What, what what jumped out at you? What did you come upon regarding uh, the relationship of Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig? Well, I wanted to create recreate that tour, Chris, because it's Babe Ruth at the absolute apogee of his powers and fame. It's two weeks after he's hit the 60th home run, and it's two days after he powers the Yankees to a four-game sweep over the Pirates. And it's a way, it's a vehicle for showing what it was like to be Babe Ruth at that mm-hmm. precise moment in time and what it was like to be with Babe Ruth. And, you know, so he and Gehrig, who is 24 years old um, and who has just won the MVP award, um, he had a great season uh, and he pushed Ruth to the 60 home runs that he hit. But he was, a, as my grandmother would have said, he was a pitcher. He was a, he was a youngster. <laughs> he was young. He was naive. He was inexperienced. So, for example, when they go through Ogden, Utah, and a sports editor at the local paper decides to take them for a ride through the Ogden Canyon, you know, Gehrig's looking around for the, for the cowboys and Indians. He had never been west of the, of, um, of the Mississippi. He was... Um, and he was Babe Ruth's opposite in so many ways. He was the overly mothered boy with Mom Gehrig, you know, at the top of uh, the pyramid of his responsibilities and, and uh, obligations. And uh, Babe Ruth was the motherless boy. Um, Babe Ruth was as profligate with money and, uh, as, as, as Lou Gehrig was tight-fisted. Mm-hmm. But... Um, at that point, it was an affectionate relationship, and Gehrig said, oh boy, it was a real education traveling around with, with the babe. You can only imagine what he learned that I was not able to get at in detail. Sure. Um, he said, uh, you know, mm, we would have been arrested a whole lot of times if babe hadn't been there. Well, if babe hadn't been there, they probably wouldn't have been in the trouble with or in whatever that might have been. Uh, but it was a you know, you, and, and one of the delights of the local newspaper coverage in each of those towns, I mean, this was a big event. The sure. New York writers saw him every day. You know, they, were, they had complete access to him. But these local papers in San Jose and Omaha and, you know, Kansas City even, you know, were like writing down every word they, they said. So you got a sense of the byplay between them. And, and whatever the relationship became later in the feud over how Ruth's second wife, Claire, d- treated uh, her own biological daughter versus Babe's daughter from his first marriage, at that point in time, 
It was completely collegial. And Walsh, who was a genius and you know, visionary in promotion and marketing and PR and spin, you know, spun the whole thing as here's the new reformed babe, you know, in his wise elder mode <laughs> teaching right. Lou Gehrig the ropes. It was it was fabulous. Well, Christy Walsh is a very important figure in this story. I mean, he's, you know, one of the uh, real architects, I think, of, of Ruth as celebrity. And um, and again, I don't think that we've we've ever gotten this clear a picture. I will say too, this tour, you basically put us on the road, taking us from city to city. I found it exhilarating to be able to to visit the way we did and kind of get the pulse of what people were thinking and feeling when these guys blew through town. It's another wonderful aspect of the book that uh, it almost feels like we're there in real time as you write about it. Uh, thank you, Chris. I really, uh, you know, like little details. Which were which I assembled almost as if they were the pieces of mosaics that you would put together to have a whole wall mosaic. I mean, I mm-hmm. remember finding out by looking at a an auction catalog that this that one of the hats Babe Ruth wore um, on the barnstorming tour was being sold, and it was being sold by the grandson of a young pastry chef at a hotel where they had stayed who had sat on his lap and flirted with him. God knows what else she did with him, but she ended up with the hat, and the hat ended up being sold for a hundred and, I don't know, I think it was $150,000. So, you know, and and the detail of how she had the hat, um, you know, was all in the auction catalog. So the sources of information were you know, endless and plentiful, but again, not the ones you would have set out looking for. Right. Well, again, as you cite throughout the book, I mean, again, you you managed to track down people with first, second hand, third hand. I mean, you, you really did a detective's job of, of piecing these things together uh, to tell the stories. And I think, again, it's why it makes it such an unusual book is, is the depth of which you went to bring all these stories to life. And again, there are so many different little stories. And I can't stress enough, this isn't a book for people that just love baseball. This is for people who love culture, who love history, who love learning about you know, how America changed over the decades in the earlier part of the 20th century. I mean, it really goes into thematically a lot of things that are beyond Babe Ruth. And I think that's, that's really the, the wonderful accomplishment here, too, is just as, a, as, an, as an invigorating history book. You know, you get so much done here um, between all well, of these you know, stories. One of the stories that comes to mind that I particularly loved and didn't, of course, expect because you don't really have – specific expectations. The littlest town they visited um, was Marysville, California, which is known as the gateway to the gold mines. Right. And it was actually named after one of the survivors of the, um, oh gosh, Chris, help me out. It just went right out of my head. The uh, survivors of the uh, cannibalism. Um, and, uh, oh, the Donner, Donner was, Party. Well, no, thank you. Mary is one of the Donner family members, and she survived, and they named the town after her. Um, and the only reason they added this trip was because Ruth's back was hurting so badly from having gone from town to town to town, sleeping on trains, and you can imagine he didn't sleep too well or fit too well into those bunks, and hitting nonstop. And even if they weren't hitting against, you know, major league pitching, they were still swinging and swinging for the fences because they sure. were do- also doing exhibitions. So by the time they get to you know that part of the trip in Northern California, 
you know, his back is killing him. And in fact, recently discovered footage, or I should say recently identified footage of him and Gehrig at a ballpark, we were able to, to I, I dated it from and uh, decided where it was based on how he grimaced and re- reached for his back. Tom Schieber at the Hall of Fame went to the Museum of Japanese American History and was able to identify it from a different point of view. But anyway, he, he grabs his back. One of the other local papers tells him, uh, 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 players tells him about a great chiropractor who's in Marysville. So they add a trip so they can go Amazing. to Marysville and he can get his back work done. And then he goes to play this game after visiting with the chiropractor and the head of the, the family that's uh, the guy who runs this league at, where he brings steaks to breakfast and nobody's ever seen a steak, much less one for breakfast. And he goes out to face this local team which was not even Class D. I mean, this was a, a Sunday league in Northern California, but a very good quality team. And there's a young pitcher named Tub Perry. And I met with Tub Perry's grandsons and his, and, and his sister who was still alive, who described, you know, where he was and what was going on in his life. He was a father of, of two young babies. He had had tryouts with, um, and that had, you know, gone badly with, with the PCL teams, and this was his chance to show people who he was, what he was made of, and Ruth's got this bad back, and this kid's throwing hard at him, and Ruth is like really pissed off, you know, what's he want to do, make my back hurt again, you know, the last thing he wants to do is walk, you know, and the kid walks him. He's trying to strike him out. Everybody's saying, oh, just throw it in there for him. And no, no, no. He's going to use this occasion to show his stuff. And he did ultimately get a tryout and a job with a PCL. Uh, San Francisco Seals, which, of course, was a legendary team, didn't win the PCL pennant that year, but um, had pretty much every other year. And ultimately, Tug Perry probably didn't have what it took or he was past his prime. To, to last at that level of competition. Um, but he also had a greater desire to go home and stick in Calusa uh, and pitch for the prune pickers and raise his family. So as a contrast to Babe Ruth, he was a perfect foil of the two kinds of lives that you know guys with a love for baseball could end up living. That's a little bit, just an example, a taste of what you get in the big fella, Babe Ruth and the world he created uh, from Jane Levy. I am Chris Septing. This is The Moment. We have another break here. We'll be back in just a minute. Thanks for joining us. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
news, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to The Moment with Chris Epting. If you have a question or comment about our show, please send an email to Chris at chrisepting.com. That's chris at chrisepting.com. Now, back to The Moment. And talking today with author of The Big Fella, Babe Ruth and the World He Created from HarperCollins, Jane Levy. Hey, Jane, we've been obviously getting lost in talking baseball here, which is very easy for baseball, baseball fans to do. Let me, let me ask you, what are a couple of moments from your life as a writer that stand out to you as, as, as those moments that uh, where things changed, you know, where you look back and think, you know what, that's the point. That's where things really took a turn for me. You know, the, um, you probably read it yourself. There was an obituary um, in yesterday's Times for Russell Baker, the great oh. columnist who was, um, yes, a humor writer, but he was also a very, very good journalist. And somebody, Tom Wicker, in fact, his colleague Tom Wicker, once asked him what, was, what kind of courses should be taught at journalism school. And uh, Russell Baker said, um, well, uh, only one. You should, and I'm paraphrasing, but I got it pretty close. You make make these kids stand outside a locked door um, for six hours and, and have somebody stick their head out and say, no comment, and then tell them to go back and write um, 800 words on deadline. And um, that happened to me in my first um, year, I think, at the Washington Post, um, I don't even want to admit how long ago that was, but 79, 80, 81, something like that. I went to interview Earl Campbell, the great running back from um, uh, the Houston Oilers, and he hid from me in a men's room. It was made of cinder blocks, I remember very, very clearly, because I stood in the parking lot outside said men's room for five hours waiting for Earl Campbell to come out. And when he did come out flying past me, since he was not yet crippled by football, you know, he went past and he said, no comma. (laughs) You know, um, it was exactly that scenario. I also was sent uh, once to stake out the apartment of Rosie Ruiz, the woman who had stepped into the New York, uh, the Boston Marathon. um, And it was a cause celebre. And, um, the first place I staked out, I think, was the wrong one. It was on uh, West 86th Street. And then I got a tip that it was a different place on 42nd Street. So I stood out there for eight hours, and it was cold. And I remember going inside, finally going through the revolving glass door, thinking, okay, maybe the you know the guy at the desk will help me out. So I walked in and said, I'm looking for Rosie Ruiz. And he said, oh, she just went out the other way <laughs> through the revolving door. So um, there is a kind of tenacity um, mm-hmm. verging on obsessiveness and zealotry that I think um, you, you have to have to be a, a good reporter. Um, I went to Columbia University Journalism School, and our first assignment, and I, looking back on it, I can surely see what, it, what the purpose of it was, was to send us all to the South Bronx. And they gave us each a topic. 
and mine happened to be housing. Um, and, you know, they were going to separate the wheat from the chaff, and the South Bronx was not a pretty place back in the day. Right. And uh, they were going to see who was too scared to go, basically. And I went and did a story about my grandmother's building on Walton Avenue, which was two blocks from home plate at the old Yankee Stadium, uh, and it was called the Yankee Arms, and it had a stained glass window in the uh, foyer with two cross baths over a heraldic shield. And going to be at my grandmother's meant being close to my Yankees, and being close to my Yankees meant going to my grandmother's and having her chocolate seven-layer cake and the bond, um, the entanglement between the two was, um, was set in stone at that point. And when she died uh, in the mid-60s, all I had left was Horace Clark and the New York Yankees. What wonderful moments. It's interesting, too, how those moments in your life speak to tenacity, a love of history. I mean, this sort of digging deep. I mean, things that obviously foretold what you would go on to do uh, in terms of your books and writing. You know, it seems like those seeds were planted in you a long time ago. Well, you know, what was interesting about that story, I dug it out not that long ago, um, was the history of the building for my grandparents moving uptown from um, the Lower East Side where so many Jewish families were, you know, immigrant stock. My grandfather certainly was, a, was an immigrant. He'd come over in 1908. Um, but the building was a kind of safety valve. And it was where you went when you reached a certain level of security and I'm not going to say prosperity, but, but, secu- but security, financial sure. security. And when I went back there in 1976, um, it was performing exactly the same function, but for an entirely different population. It was, it was Hispanic. All the Jews had moved out of that part of what, you know, the area that's called the stadium area, and mm-hmm. the, the, the whole neighborhood sort of went to hell when, uh, when Park West, not Park West Village, the, um, the big development was, was uh, put up near the, uh, near the amusement park off, the, off 95, no, it would have been out near 87, 287. Um, and so, but, but in terms of the people who were living there in, in 76, it was every bit um, the step up that it had been for my, for my grandparents. And this fall, when I went back there again, the night that I got to throw out a ball, first ball at Yankee Stadium. That's got to be, by the way, that has to be one of the moments in your life, by the way. (laughs) Totally. Um, Yeah, and I got very good advice from Sandy Koufax about it. But I go back there because I had always sworn that someday, somehow, I would take, uh, you know, I'm not not Spanish-speaking, that I would get um, a friend to go with me and go to the super and see if I could buy that stained glass window. And I get there, and it's gone. It had been replaced by clear glass, creating a, a back exit from the building. Um, and I thought, oh, my God, I missed it. But my grandmother's building, my grandmother's apartment um, on the second floor was completely boarded up uh, with plywood. What did... Um what did Sandy Koufax advise you before throwing out the first pitch, <laughs> if you don't mind sharing, if you're allowed to no, share No, I don't that. mind at all. He said, um, 
I found out about it in June, which gave me a summer to work out, you know, and get my arm in shape. And he said, well, Levy, how, how far can you throw it? And as you well know, Chris, nobody in sports calls anybody by their first name. So I'm Levy. And um, he said, well, so how far can you throw it, Levy? And I said, I'm oh, lying a little bit. I said, ah, probably 40, 45 feet. And he says, stand 30. <laughs> and I said, okay, well, I can stand 30. And he, he had done a thing um, which he doesn't do very often, I don't know, a year or so ago, where he went out to, to at Dodger Stadium to the mound with Don Newcomb, one of his right. old teammates. So I said, well, how far would you have thrown it if you, you stood if, if Newcomb wasn't, wasn't with you? Because Newcomb was le- leaning heavily on him. And he said, are you kidding? I wouldn't have gone at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I get out in the field, and by the end of the summer, I could throw 60 feet, 6 inches. And right before the game, which was on September 21st, I called him. I said, I think I have a dead arm. And he said, dead arm. That's the name of a very good Shiraz. <laughs> <laughs> so I go out on the mound. I remember on the field. I remember to skip over the, you know, the baseline and not right, step on the chalk. And I waved my cap. I was wearing my Bustin Babes cap that they make replicas of now. Um, and I look at the mound and I think to myself, I could do that. <laughs> and then I remember. Then I heard the voice of God, Sandy Koufax, saying, "Stand thirty. <laughs> So I stood 30. Well, I saw the video and you did great. I mean, I, you know, that's a thing with me. When my son and I have catches every couple of nights, the last throw is me imagining I'm a ma- I'm on a mound at a ballpark thrown out a first pitch, you know, and we don't go in until I throw a decent strike. So I was watching you. Well, I thought I did you, terribly and my daughter said, you bounced it. <laughs> no, <laughs> listen, a there's a lot of pressure out there. It. You 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 perform very well. I think. Look, look at look at what happens to some other people that go out there and do it. You did great. You did great. Yeah, but Jane, there was that, that nun was, uh, all summer in Chicago who was throwing strikes from the mound, and everybody's saying, "Come on, Levy, if the nun if the nun can do it, she's older than you. You can do it." And I'm going, "Well, she has God on her side. I'm not sure I do. I actually don't think I was standing thirty. I think I was standing closer to forty feet. You can't tell from the." From the videotape, <laughs> but um, it, I don't think it bounced. There's two angles. I don't think it bounced. The catcher was uh, <laughs> like the Tyler Wade, I think. My guest today um, is Jane Levy, author of The Big Fella, Babe Ruth and the World He Created, out from HarperCollins. It is um, up for all kinds of awards. It's a bestseller. It is really, uh, she has written the definitive book, not just about Babe Ruth, but I think about the intersection of baseball and American popular culture. Jane, what I'd love to do after this commercial break is come back for our next segment and maybe call out some of the moments in the book that you think if Babe were here today, he would point to and say, yes, pivotal moment in my life. This is, this is what changed me, made me what I am. So why don't you think about that? We'll be back in just a minute. My name is Chris Epting. You're listening to The Moment. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus. 
Creating Achilles' Shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to The Moment with Chris Epting. If you have a question or a comment about our show, please send an email to Chris at chrisepting.com. That's chris at chrisepting.com. Now, back to The Moment. Thank you for joining us today. Back with my special guest author, Jane Levy. We're talking all about her book, The Big Fella, Babe Ruth and the World He Created. Jane, we were talking in the last segment about some moments from your life as a writer, as a journalist that uh, are very special. If you had to pull a few out of your book uh, that, that you think would be moments for Babe Ruth, you know, pivotal moments where things really change for him. What would be a couple of those if we can, you know, be so bold to kind of not having him here as a guest today? Uh, well, I'm reminded of, I don't know if you remember the old Yankee Stadium, they had, they had a bank of telephones where you could, they had recordings of old Yankees on the phone. And Babe I do was. remember that. And I remember as a kid, the Babe Ruth one, the tape was so stretched. It was like playing a 45 record at 33, <laughs> but it was still Babe Ruth in your ear talking to you. And as a kid, it was like, I would wait online at those. There was behind for, uh, home plate and kind of the first level there at the old stadium. And uh, so Babe's not here today, but what do, you, what do you think would be some of his moments from his life based on the research you did for your book? Undoubtedly, um, the the most pivotal one would have been on June 13, 1902, when he was sent off to St. Mary's. And um, he was seven. He thought he was eight because his mother couldn't remember the correct year of his birth. And um, he was really expunged from the family and, and sent off to create a life and a self. Um, and, you know... And he did it. I mean, God damn it, he did it. He sure did. Um, of all the journeys, you know, he took, all the barnstorming tours, all those 714 tours of the bases, that journey from home to the home had to be definitive. Um, it, you know, he went from feeling that he was a part of a family and an, an entity to being completely a, ca- a, a castaway, um, and it makes more sense now why it happened, knowing about the divorce between George and Kate and the uh, profound instability of his uh, the, of the family, which um, it, it depends on you know exactly what you believe. His sister Mamie, who was the only other child of that of that marriage to survive into adulthood always said that George and Kate had eight children. 
um, I could only locate six in the in the uh, archives of the Maryland State Archives. And of those six that I was able to find, four died in infancy. So here's hmm. this little kid who's um, getting sent off. There's only two kids left, and they still don't want him. You know, there's no way that that isn't the defining moment of, of, of anyone's life. Mm-hmm. What did I do? You know, how, how bad could I have been? You know, why don't either of my parents want me? Um, and he had seen by that time at least three siblings, perhaps more, um, die in infancy. So, uh, you know, that unequivocally was um, the, the, the turning point in his life. Fascinating. As a ball player, where do you think uh, being uh, going from the Red Sox to the Yankees would rank in terms of him uh, as a baseball player? Well, I mean, you know, it's it's 1919. He's he's very shrewd in understanding his value um, to ownership, both the Red Sox and the Yankees, and he's demanding a lot of money that Harry Frazee has no intention or ability to pay. At mm-hmm. that time, Jake Rupert, owner of the Yankees at the other time, had the dough and he had the foresight to know that prohibition was coming. And right. while I couldn't find any documentation saying, you know, I got to figure out a new way to make money uh, because uh, I'm not sure going to be marketing my that, beer. Though. Yeah, it sure I'm points sorry? to I mean, it. There wasn't, I mean, you know. The, the window of prohibition was Ruth's career, essentially, 1919 right. to 34. Not one beer was sold in Yankee Stadium when he played there. Exactly. And, you know, so he, he was he, he was a revenue stream for the rest of his playing career for the Yankees. He, he is the reason that, you know, it's the evil empire, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, so it was... Certainly, a pivotal moment uh, for uh, for Jake Rupert and the Yankees, and it gave him the opportunity to be completely what he was destined to be. Destined to be, which is, you know, the, the guy who created power baseball. Um, right. There was none of this, you know. Well, he should have been pitching still. Blah 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 blah. Um, you know, he was he was hired to put fannies in the seats and to bring in the dough. And I have a whole long section facilitated by this wonderful economist, Michael Halpert, who, you know, raked through the Yankee ledgers and accounting books at the Hall of Fame to show just how much money he was worth to the Yankees. And I think he paid off at, you know, 20 times what they invested in him and what they paid for him was a hundred grand, not a hundred and twenty-five, as was mistakenly reported at the time by the New York Times. And with the amount of interest that um, Jake Rupert paid, which was six percent on this hundred thousand dollars, and the three hundred thousand that Harry Frazee borrowed for him at seven percent. If you do the math, and I'm not great at it, but Michael Halpert is, what that means is that at the end of six years, basically Harry Frazee had paid the Yankees to take Babe Ruth off his hands. Wow. It's amazing. Um, 
Jane, what do you think about the end, in terms of a moment, the end of Ruth's career, not being able to find that place, the, 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 realizing that baseball was not going to be there for him? Do you think that stands out in some sense as sort of a, a tragic end to this, this grand journey he had taken um, the decades before? Yes, completely, because it, it replicated and recapitulated the sense of abandonment that he had from his childhood. You know, all he wanted was to be loved. And mm-hmm. one of his granddaughters, Donna Analovich, um, said to me this fabulous thing. She said he was a window wisher. And he's the guy who would walk along the street and he'd look in a window and he'd see a family sitting around at a, at a dinner table talking and he'd think to himself, why didn't I ever have that? And one of the real misperceptions of him was that, you know, as soon as he got out of St. Mary's, he was like this wild animal with unsated appetites and went running amok, you know, filling himself with food and beer and women. When, in fact, the first thing he did um, upon leaving St. Mary's uh, and, and arriving and, you know, being sold from the Orioles to Boston was to get married. So right. he tried in marrying a waitress, a 16-year-old waitress from Boston, um, to create for himself the family he never had. And um, I find that very poignant, that it didn't work, that he did discover there was a whole other world for him to you know, play in and enjoy and exploit. Um, it is not surprising, and I would say there's a fair number of other professional athletes who have done the same. I think the death of Helen Ruth, uh, his first wife, Mm -hmm. in a tragic fire uh, in um, Waterford, uh, uh, Watertown, excuse me, um, Massachusetts, outside of Boston in January 1929, um, was another moment of of crisis for him because it meant that... um, while he was already involved with Claire Ruth, the woman he would marry three months later, it, it represented a kind of failure. Um, and, uh, you know, that little George was completely gone. Helen still called him George. Uh, Claire always called him uh, Babe. Hmm. Well, with that, Jane, I could talk to you for hours and hours. We were almost at the end here. I want to thank my very special guest today, Jane Levy, whose terrific book, The Big Fella, Babe Ruth, and the World He Created, is earning all of the attention it so richly deserves. It really is special. Um, Jane, congratulations. You've, you've, really, uh, you, you've really hit it out of the park with this one, too. <laughs> As I know, people Thanks, keep telling you. My but, only uh, home run, <laughs> my uh, career, it, it, it my really professional career. really is special, career. and again, it, it goes beyond baseball. It even goes beyond Babe Ruth. This is a much bigger story about about the country, about history, about culture, about celebrity, about all kinds of things that you've woven together in ways that are so interesting and unexpected. And, and again, the, the the way you write and how you structured the book, I think, is exhilarating. It uh, it's every page just just you know crackles with interesting stories in fact and stuff so congratulations and thank you as a baseball fan for doing what you've done I really appreciate it I know I speak for many other baseball fans out there so Jane Levy thank you my name is Chris Epting want to thank you for joining me here on The Moment I'll be back uh, next week and we'll see you soon thank you for taking a moment out of your busy week to join us for The Moment 
Be sure to join Chris Epting for another edition next Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.